0: Hey there, and welcome to the Money Malpractice Podcast, where we dive into the most important questions and strategies that physicians face when it comes to their money. Today, we're going to be talking about the physician employment contract, so what to look out for, what things might be negotiable, things along those lines. And then we're also going to be offering some tips on how to navigate through that document, a document that can often seem very overwhelming, especially for somebody without a background in contract law. So, Uh, We'll dive into that in a minute, but first, please let me emphasize that this podcast is designed to be educational in nature, but is strictly for your entertainment purposes only. So please contact your financial advisor to discuss any of the ideas or strategies mentioned today before acting on them. If you do not have a fiduciary financial advisor, I invite you to reach out to me for a complimentary financial evaluation, and I'll see if I might be able to get you started down your road to financial freedom. So, with that out of the way, and without any further ado, let's jump in and get started with episode six of the Money Malpractice Podcast. (laughs) All right, so let me start off by saying, first of all, that um, I am not an attorney, and I do not play one on TV, nor did I stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. So when it comes to the technical and legal implications of a contractual agreement, my official recommendation would be to seek the advice of counsel who would be well-versed in this area. There are a lot of legal firms that specialize in contract review. Many of them are geared specifically toward physicians so if you cringe at the thought of going through this contract yourself, and especially if you cringe at the idea of playing hardball with your potential future employer when it comes to negotiating, a, an attorney that's well-versed in contract law would be able to help you with that and even probably serve as an intermediary for you during those contract discussions. So uh, in order to find an attorney to review your contract or negotiate on your behalf, you can start by looking at your state medical association to see if they have any options that exist through their resources. Otherwise, just Google physician contract review and you'll find quite a few options and you'll be able to sort through some in your area and be able to meet with an attorney that's well-versed with contract law in your state. So with that said, the following discussion should get you pointed in the right direction. I'm not going to claim to be an attorney at any point along the way. However, when you look at enough employment contracts and talk about them enough, you start to understand how they work and what you can expect to be included inside of them. So that will, that's what we're going to dive into today. Um, I will say I, this is the second time I'm trying to record this podcast because the first take took way too long. There's so much to talk about that uh, it honestly, I was boring myself by the time I got through with it. So I'm going to try to breeze through this a little bit quicker um, this time through. Keep it to 15 or 20 minutes, just so we can highlight the bullet points here. But before we even dive into the meat and potatoes of the contract, I'd really like to talk about one thing that I think is even more important than anything inside the contract itself, and that's your mindset going into the interview and going into taking a look at your first contract offer and And what I'm saying here is basically a mental exercise that I'm suggesting you take, and that is simply to prioritize. Prioritize the things that are most important in your life first before you even start to think about how that might affect the language of your ideal contract. So for example, this is one that I could probably relate to with my wife and I making our decisions on her contract is for us spending time with our kids in the evenings and in the weekends was a top priority. So we started with that in our negotiations and we made sure that she had the ability to have flexible schedule That um, she can have uh, three day weekends actually, and that we made sure that she wasn't working nights or anything along those lines. So uh, that worked out pretty well for us. But that was because we prioritized ahead of time on what was important. Because what's going to happen is when you sit down inside these interviews, and they they call them interviews, but in reality, because physicians are in such short supply they're really trying to woo you to come work for them. You know, they're going to give you a flattering recruitment presentation and they're going to give you a bunch of great things about their um, practice or the hospital system or whatever it is that employers structured as. And so before you get swept up in all of that, all of those um, flattering presentations, make sure you understand what you're looking for first and then you can start diving through and and sorting through your opportunities that might exist out there. So with those priorities in mind as the driving force of your your new contract, excuse me, let's jump in and we'll talk about the things that could be included in an attending physician contract. So the first thing is the boilerplate. And um, I don't know if that's an official term or not, but basically the boilerplate part of the agreement is your standard agreement where there's very little wiggle room. It's kind of the one size fits all part of the contract. You're going to sign a clause in the agreement that you agree to all that other stuff. And that other stuff is listed in the, again, what I call the boilerplate agreement, which is, you know, it's going to have a lot of definitions in it. It's going to talk about what, you know, defines a PTO day or um, what's, that RVU, how a WRVU is calculated. It also might talk about some things like your benefit package, such as your health, your life, your short-term disability, your long-term disability, other benefits like your 401k or your 403b. A lot of those are going to have very little flexibility on behalf of the employer. So you're not going to have any wiggle room for negotiating those uh, anyway. So they basically just throw it all into this one size fits all agreement. That's pretty much non-negotiable. Uh, but you're not going to find a whole lot of stuff in there that you're you're probably going to get too upset about anyway. It's the other stuff that we're going to talk about today that's going to be the important stuff. So the first and foremost, most important thing that you obviously look at when you start talking about your contract is obviously how much you're going to get paid. And that can come in a lot of different ways. So it's important to break down how you consider what it is that you are getting paid. So Obviously, there's going to be certain aspects such as the guaranteed salary, but then there's also signing bonuses, retention bonuses, and um, extra shift compensation, things like that. We want to make sure that all of those things play into how you try to compare your offers and understand, you know, try to basically break it down or boil it down into an apples to apples conversation, even though they're never going to be the exact same contract, You just want to be able to have it for comparison's sake. So the first thing is the guaranteed salary. For most new physicians hiring into a new employer, you're going to be guaranteed a salary for a short while at least in order to get your practice up and running. So over time, that guarantee typically falls away and you begin working off the performance-based model, which is known as WRVUs. And so inside this model, you are essentially going to be compensated more for the harder that you work. So the more profitable you are to your employer, the more money they're going to be willing to pay you. And that's how they—that's how they boil it down. It's almost like a commission-based system. Um, not exactly like that. It probably wouldn't be a great system to have. But it's uh, it, to oversimplify the concept. That's kind of how it works. It's a performance-based system, and. You would like to know then in your contract, how long are you going to be a guaranteed salary versus when do you need to start performing and actually creating enough revenue for your employer to make essentially offset that guarantee. So if you think that you're going to be able to build your practice up in a very short time and you don't need that guaranteed salary for very long, Don't negotiate a longer guarantee period if you don't think you're gonna need it because you're gonna use up one of your negotiating chips, so to speak, at that point in time. So save that. Uh, But if you think it's gonna take a while, then that guaranteed salary might be a nice thing to have. Also, you're gonna look at what kind of signing bonus or retention bonus they're going to give you and how that's structured. Just keep in mind that if they give you a signing bonus, but you have a, let's say, a five year contract associated with that signing bonus, most likely you're gonna have to pay back. A portion of that signing bonus if you leave that employer before your contract is up. And most likely it's going to be prorated to the day that you leave. So if you stay for two years of your five year agreement, but you were given a $100,000 signing bonus, well, you're going to have to pay back $60,000. So that's kind of the downside of the signing bonus is understanding that they've kind of got you there once they pay that check they they know that you're it's going to be really hard for you to leave and pay back that big chunk of money in order to go take another job. Um, and so consider what that means and how you would calculate that into, you know, again boiling down to apples and apples comparison. I like to think of the signing bonus as just prorate it over the course of the contract and add and then take that yearly annual number and add that to my annual salary. And that's the best way for creating an apples-to-apples comparison. And then the next thing to look at would be your extra shift compensation. So um, if you're a shift-oriented specialty, if you work shifts as a normal part, or maybe that's just an additional part, having some call shifts uh, mixed in, um, you need to understand how you're going to get paid when you take an extra shift. Because typically an employer is going to want to use their staff on hand to fill extra shifts instead of going to the locums route, which is generally going to be a lot more expensive. So you can feel like a team player by picking up the extra shifts, but at the end of the day, you want to get paid for that and you need to know how much and and how that works. Alright. So speaking of shift work, the next thing we want to understand is how the hours are going to work with your shifts. So if you again, if you're a specialty that has shifts, and not just normal office hours, um, you're going to want to know how those shifts are divvied up. Uh, is it based on seniority or is, do you get a, did the, a draw or some sort of, of uh, system? It, are you getting weeks or blocks of shifts at a time or are they interspersed throughout the month? Uh, do you have to work weekends, holidays? How are those How are those established? And also, how far in advance is the schedule given to you for your shifts? You don't want it to be so far in advance that you have to plan your vacations a year in advance. Maybe some of you would like that, but um, most of you probably not. But at the same time, you don't want them given to you a week before you, you start and you have to put your whole life on hold waiting for your schedule to come out. So get an understanding of how that works and remember that these types of things often aren't written inside of a contract. So if it's not in writing, it's just their word and it doesn't mean anything. Figure, it, figure out what it needs to be and if it's a deal breaker, have it written into your contract so that they can't pull the plug on that at some point later on down the road. So again, with our hours then, the other thing we want to look at is the flexibility of those hours. Do you have the ability to work if you if you have office hours do you have the ability to work for 10 hour days versus um, five eight hour days Um, can you come in early or can you have late hours one day those are the types of things you'd like to look at For my wife, I kind of mentioned earlier. we had negotiated a four- day work week as an option for her if she chose to do that. Now she doesn't have to, so we can switch back to more of a traditional work week if we want later on. But right now she's working um, you know her, she sees her first patient at 7:30 in the morning and she is in the office till about five or 5:30 in the evening, but she only works Monday through Thursday. so she has her Fridays blocked, and that's one of the flexibility things that was important to us. And then the other thing would be if you do plan on working a second job or moonlighting somewhere, maybe you work, you know, would pick up some shifts in the ER or something. Uh, understand how that would work and what kind of contract language would limit you in how much you would work that second gig. All right, uh, there's a couple other clauses that are really important that I want to dive into. I call these the legalese sections, so there are a lot of legal terms and um, and specifics that you'll only see in contracts such as this. But the first one is the non-competition clause, uh, also known as the non-compete. And you've probably heard of this before. Maybe you didn't quite know what it means. But basically, the non-compete essentially is telling, is an agreement between you and the employer that says, if you leave that employer, you are not going to go to work somewhere else within a certain region for a certain period of time. So f- again, just as an example for my wife, she has a 30 mile radius and an 18th month, 18 month period of time where she could not go and open a practice or work for somebody else within that radius and within that scope of time. Otherwise she'll be violating her non-compete after she leaves that her current employer if she were to leave that current employer. Okay, so it's important to know how limiting that is for you if you, you know, aren't sure exactly where you're going to find yourself in, say, five or ten years. You want to know what your options might be and how limited you're going to be by that non-compete. The next one would be the non-solicitation clause, and it's very similar to the non-compete. It doesn't restrict where you can work, but it restricts how you can target your patients. So if you are going to be in an area that is, say, outside the border of where your non-compete radius would be, But close enough where you might be able to draw some patients to your new practice, you would be limited to how you could market to those patients. So you couldn't tell them on, you know, say you're finishing up your last day of work. You couldn't go and call all your patients and say, come follow me. Um, You couldn't... uh, send direct mail or emails or contact them in any way in most non-compete scenarios or excuse me, most non-solicitation scenarios, you could not solicit your current patient panel to come follow you to your new practice. That's just the way that that clause works. And in the same form, you would not be able to try and hire away employees of your former employer Because they're gonna fall under that non solicitation clause as well in most uh, scenarios. All right, the other things to look for, real quick does your contract specify that you have legal resources available to you through your employer? Do they have a legal team that would represent you in any cases that might be brought against you or any subpoenas that might get thrown at you? a great legal team is one of those things that you don't think about a whole lot until you need to use them and then they're great to have. So just think about that. Make sure that's in the contract somewhere or written somewhere inside the employee handbook or somewhere along those lines. And the other thing would be to understand who is paying the malpractice insurance. Obviously, that's a very expensive uh, policy that you would have to pay if your employer was not paying that, but most employers do. But just make sure you understand that before you jump into a contract. Finally, the last, last quick few tidbits here. Make sure you know what the contract term is. That should be pretty obvious. We want to make sure that we're not signing a 10 year agreement. If we think we're signing a two year agreement, we want to know if they're going to pay any moving expenses. So a lot of employers as an added perk will pay you to relocate and give you a certain dollar amount to do so. This is pretty self-explanatory, but just make sure you understand how that process works, what's allowable to be reimbursed and things along those lines. And then also look in the fine print to see if there's any clause that says something along the lines of uh, additional responsibilities as assigned by employer. So this can give a lot of power to the employer to require you to attend things like committee meetings or fundraiser events or uh, mentorship programs, things along those lines. They can, they can, hold this clause over your head. If you don't want to participate in those things, they can say, well, you are required to under your contract. So just kind of take a look and make sure that uh, you understand that clause, if it is in there. And then lastly, um, most employers will provide some sort of marketing resources for you to help you get your name out as a local provider. You want to understand what that looks like, how they're going to support you in your success, and what sort of resources they're going to dedicate to you in your practice. And then my final tips here before we peace out for today. One, and I mentioned this a little bit at the beginning, but remember you are interviewing them as much as they are interviewing you, if not more so, because honestly physicians are in generally in such short supply. You probably have the upper hand if you are willing to consider other locations or other opportunities. And so ask questions and remember that they're trying to impress you. You need to kind of sort through the flattery and understand what this job is really going to look like when you get into it. And then secondly, if you can seek the advice of another physician that's in that group that you're that you're considering hiring into, you know, if you can make a personal connection with them, maybe take them out to dinner and pick their brain about things that are not going to show up in a contract, such as workplace culture, for example, or um, maybe what kind of what kind of staffing um, turnover does this place experience things that you might not necessarily be able to gather from an interview, but the inside scoop from another physician would be a great piece to help you understand whether this is a good contract for you to sign or not. And then finally, keep in mind that everything that we've talked about today is not an exhaust exhaustive list. There is a uh, hundred other things that's going to be inside of this contract. I've tried to highlight the main bullet points here, but just remember that Contract law can be very extensive. It can be complicated. And if you have any reservations at all about the contract before you sign it, just pay an attorney to review it for you. Make sure that everything's there, especially if they have experience working with physicians. They may be able to ask some questions that you didn't even think to ask and make sure that there's some language in there to protect you, even though Uh, You know, everything is probably hunky-dory. We still want to make sure that it's lined up correctly to protect you in the case that there is some sort of issue somewhere down the line. All right. Well, thanks for listening today. That's going to be a wrap up for this episode of the Money Malpractice Podcast. I do want to remind all our listeners that this podcast is designed to be educational in nature, but is strictly for your entertainment purposes only. So please contact your financial advisor to discuss any of the ideas or strategies mentioned today before acting on them. If you do not have a fiduciary financial advisor, I invite you to reach out to me for a complimentary financial evaluation, and I'll see if I might be able to get you started down your road to financial freedom. Well, that's it for today. So until next time, keep saving lives and keep saving money.